Hey there, podcast listener. Chris Roseborough here right at the front of the podcast. Just want to remind you, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. You know that, right? Yeah, yeah, it, it is. If you don't already support us financially, we truly can use your help. So get on your computer. Go on over to fightingforthefaith.com. Click on one of the friendly yellow buttons and support us. And, of course, if you would like to do it the traditional way, make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send that to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. And let me thank you for your financial support because we truly can't do what we're doing here without it. All right, on to the program. I enjoyed making it. I hope you enjoy listening to it. Here we go. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Thursday, June 20th, 2013. This is going to be an interesting program now that I think about it. Tuning in, you're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Roseborough. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, help you compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God, because there's no shortage of crazy, and I mean really crazy things being said out there. Now, we've got a lot of ground to cover today, and um, I'll, I'll kind of start backwards, Um what we're going to be working on, just so you, you kind of get where we're going with today, I'm going to build off of, uh, later in this first hour, I'm going to build off of something that I pointed out uh, in the last program, not yesterday's program, but Tuesday's program, where I did a full episode. And that was when uh, Jonathan Brozog of Passion Church out there in uh, Minneapolis, Minnesota, was talking about uh, just kind of a side comment that he made about how in uh, you know those Pentecostal charismatic churches that are into the word of faith heresy, that uh, the people there cannot, under any circumstances, tell you um, if something is terrible going wrong in their life. And so this is, if you would, kind of the really dark underbelly of the uh, happy, smiley face theology of uh, Joel Osteen and uh, w- those people who are in the Word of Faith heresy. So we're, we're going to build off of that today. In fact, uh, I spent some time on uh, the Reverend Bob Lico's website. Uh, it, and you can find his uh, website. if you. It, his last name is Lico, L-I-I-C-H-O-W. And um, had a chance to meet uh, Pastor Lico at the Issues Etc. Center of Making the Case Conference. And his website is called Discernment Ministries International. And uh, he he is a guy who was former Pentecostal Word of Faith uh, uh, preacher and pastor, and so he he knows this uh, he knows this uh, movement kind of from the inside out, and knows the dark night of the soul that a lot of people go through because he's been through it in the uh, in you know those who are into this Word of Faith theology. And Joel Osteen is kind of like the happy smiling frontman for this word of faith heresy. In fact, uh, oftentimes on his website, Bob Lico refers to Joel Osteen as teaching word of faith heresy 101. Uh, yeah, and uh, 
I think he really makes a good point. And so one of the things I'm going to be doing today, um, again, I'm kind of starting backwards and moving. I'm all over the place now that I think about it. <laughs> I'm getting old. You know, it's like, you know, this is one of the reasons why I write down the different segments I'm going to talk about. But I'm looking at what I'm going to talk about and realizing I don't know if I want to go according to the order that I thought would be a wise w- way to do it. Once we turn on the microphone, all bets were off. Let's just put it that way. But uh, so one of the things we're doing, not in second hour, but in first hour, is I'm going to I'm going to play for you a portion of the introduction to um, Joel Osteen's book, I Declare. Okay, and the, I mean, it says it all, like in the first three paragraphs of the introduction, what this thing is. And I'm going to read for you. Um, uh, Pastor Bob Lico's um, several um, paragraphs from a blog post that he wrote on this theology. And the name of this segment from his blog post is called The Tyranny of Words, The Tyranny of Words. And if you follow me on Facebook and Twitter, then one of the things that you know is that yesterday I sent out a, a, a basically a link to a graphic that I created and uh, kind of creepy, you know, kind of a creepy graphic. And you can still find it on Facebook and Twitter. But the meme that I sent out, I call it my smiley meme. And it shows five people kind of standing there with their arms crossed or kind of looking important. And over their faces, I've put a a smiley face, you know, the two eyes and the big, and, and the big yellow circle and the big smiley face. And um, and here's what I've said in it. You can get it off of my Facebook wall or you can grab it off of Twitter, off of my Twit pics. But it, here's what it says. It says, we only say positive words at our church because Joel Osteen says our words have creative power. Whenever we speak something either good or bad, we give life to what we are saying. So creepy, huh? So, you know, think of it this way. If you attend a church like Joel Osteen's church, you know, out there in Houston, Lakewood, um, think of it this way. It's almost this um, the tyranny of the positive. Um, what was the what was that program back when I was growing up? They had something, uh, some kind of a mini series they did on, you know, and it was like the Stepford Wives or something like that, where, you know, you go into this neighborhood and. And, and and oh, the people are just so sweet and just saccharine nice and and all this kind of stuff and and all of that is the facade, but underneath it is this really nasty stuff. I I think Joel Osteen. I think we need to start thinking of him as like the Stepford pastor or something like that. You know, he he and his wife. You know, they always have the smiley face. They're always talking about the positive. Always talking about victory and all this kind of stuff. And what they're doing is placing people in bondage to the positive. I know that sounds it's kind of a crazy way to describe it, but I think that's the right way to put it because if you believe his magic theology, and this, that's really what it is, it's, all, it's practically witchcraft, the way uh, if you really stop and pay attention to it. And, of course, all of us know that it's not true, and I'll explain that uh, when we get to the segment. But what it then does is it puts people in bondage. So we're going we're gonna to talk about that today, and I'm going to give an example from Joel Osteen's I Declare. And, uh, and again, I'm all over the place at the moment. So w- w- the order I'm giving you this stuff that we're going to talk about is not the order it's going to be delivered today on Fighting for the Faith. Just because I, <laughs> my, my brain, getting old, has decided to rebel against me, and I'm just not going to fight it. I'm just going to go with it. Uh, I, again, it all made sense when I... <laughs> produce the program but once we got in studio and and turned on the microphone and went live um 
all bets were off, like I said. Um, one of the things we're also going to be doing today is we're going to be listening to the Roman Catholic Church's version of Patricia King. Um, her name is uh, Vasula Ryden. And, um, wow, is this an interesting person. Um, I'm going to play for you uh, kind of a Fox News Chicago um, recent appearance that she made on their chat room uh, program there and, uh, and let you listen in uh, to this woman. You know, this is kind of the Roman Catholic version of Patricia King, although I don't think she gets drunk on the glory or anything like this. She's a lot more sober than her, but same ideas uh, that God speaks to her and all that kind of stuff. And the one thing that's different about Vasula than it is, uh, Patricia King is Vasula writes all of these interpretations down and claims that her writings are inspired of God. That would make them what scripture, um, but they're not. <clears throat> so, uh, and then kind of on the good side today, uh, I'm going to be reading to you a, a recent blog post. And in fact, I think this was posted uh, today by uh, Tim Challies over at challies.com. And this is just a fantastic, hard hitting to the point blog post entitled The Seven Marks of a False Teacher. The Seven Marks of a False Teacher. And Chally's just hits it out of the park with this one. And it's worth passing along. And so we'll we'll send that along to you. And then, you know, like I was saying, I was trying to get to this, but my brain wouldn't let me. Uh, in our hour number two, we're going to hear one of the weirdest things I've ever heard any uh, so-called pastor say in the pulpit. And we're going to be listen, we're going to be going to audacious church in Manchester in the United Kingdom, and we're going to be listening to a sermon um, by Glenn Barrett entitled "Extraordinary Favor." Now, the reason I picked this particular sermon is because it fits in with uh, the the overall theme for the today's episode of Fighting for the Faith, and it dovetails perfectly with the false theology of Joel Osteen and that tyranny of the positive, if you would. And uh, in this, no joke, in this sermon, uh, near the end of it, Glenn Barrett, he literally make ch claims that Naomi, this would be, uh, you, you, you know, the book of Ruth, right? Na no, Naomi, Ruth, Boaz, that story, that he makes the claim that, um, how do I put this politely so that children can listen to this, that, um, that uh, in the tail end of, um, of the book of Ruth, he claims that if you read down deep into the story and take a look at what's really going on, that uh, God gave Naomi, the grandmother of the child that Ruth um, bore, uh, Boaz, um, that Na God gave Naomi the ability to um, nurse the child miraculously. Yeah, no kidding. Um, so that would make Na Naomi uh, kind of uh, one of the first wet nurses in the um, in the uh, just weird stuff. But uh, you know, so we we got a lot of ground to cover today, and um, and so I think we should just dive right into the program proper. And since we're going to be talking about the Roman Catholic Church, well, that requires me to do this. Yeah, that's right. This is um, our Roman Catholic Church update music. Although, to be fair to the Roman Catholic Church, <laughs> um, yeah, uh, Vasula Ryden has not been officially recognized as a um, vessel for receiving direct revelation from God. Um, however, um, Vasula has, you know, um, met with... Um, uh, Cardinal Ratzinger and I think uh, 
before he was Pope and after he was Pope. So, I mean, she's kind of got connections within the Roman Catholic Church. Let's just put it that way. And uh, the Roman Catholic Church hasn't seen fit to censor her or to uh, say that what she's saying isn't true. And so she um, is really popular among Roman Catholics, which I find to be rather interesting. So what we're going to be listening to is uh, her recent, I don't know how long ago this was, not, not that long ago, appearance um, on a Chicago uh, Fox News affiliate as she was coming into town. And she's a Christian mystic and claims that God speaks through her. So, uh, again, this is the Roman Catholic version of Patricia King, if you would. So let me go ahead and kill the music here. So without any further ado, here is Vasula Wrighton um, talking on Fox News out of, the, out of Chicago uh, on her recent visit there. Here, listen in. All right, unusual guest joining us here in the chat room. She has nearly 200,000 Twitter followers, millions of believers around the world, crowds gathered to hear her speak. She says she communicates directly with God. Her name is Vas- Yeah, so does Stephen Furtick and uh, Patricia King. And yeah, there's a whole lot of people who claim this, including Rick Warren, by the way. Vasula Ryden and Vasula, welcome to the chat room. Thank you, Anna. Thank you for having me with you. Tell me, how, how, do you, how does God speak with you? Well, it's uh, now 27 years ago, you know, and I was uh, somebody who never prayed or even looked uh, and searched for God away from my own church. And uh, this is how it happened. It was a, uh, I was writing that moment a list of grocery list to give uh, to my uh, domestic so that he goes and buys the food. I had people coming that night. And uh, suddenly there, where I was doing this grocery list, I had the manifestation of my angel. I saw him in the way that uh, we... Your angel, you saw him, okay. We can see interiorly. It was so obvious. And he touched my wrist, my right wrist, wrist, and placed my hand on the paper, like saying to me, write what I'm going to tell you. Well, we, we actually have some video of you handwriting these messages because you believe that God is talking with you directly and that you write his message. Now, let me give you a biblical passage here that I think comes into play. Just because somebody claims to have had an encounter with an angel doesn't mean that they're bringing us the truth. Okay, Scripture is actually very clear on this. I will be quoting here the Apostle Paul writing to the uh, churches in Galatia who had succumbed to the Judaizers and uh, and what had happened. This then became known as the Judaizing heresy. Paul writes to them in Galatians chapter 1, verse 6. He says, I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him. That would be Jesus, who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another But there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one that we preached, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. And accursed there, by the way, is the word anathema, and it means damned, eternally damned. So, okay, so here we got this Roman Catholic woman who wasn't very religious or spiritual, and and uh, she was writing a grocery list and claims that she saw her angel, and already I'm going her, um, okay, I can think of one verse, one, really one, that kind of talks this way, but again, she's Roman Catholic. 
um, and Roman Catholicism anathematized the biblical gospel of the Council of Trent. So we got some like major problems here. Yeah. His spoken word down and that he's using you as a vessel. There are, um, Vasul, a lot of people are going to doubt your story. They're listening to it right now and they're saying no way. There are some who probably will believe it. What do you say to the people who just don't believe that this is happening? Well, uh, you know, there will be those that will not believe, and I understand them. I mean, it's... it's All right, well, what about me? I, I, I'm of the opinion that I don't know one way or another whether or not an angel appeared to you, but I think it's absolutely critical that we compare your so-called messages that you claim are re- you're receiving from God against the written word. Um, so it's absolutely possible within the realm of possibility that Satan, disguised as an angel of light, appeared to her and is giving her messages. That's absolutely possible and may even be what is going on here. So she's having a real experience. That may be absolutely what's going on. That doesn't mean that it's the source is God. Instead, um, if we're dealing with a different theology, a different gospel, different doctrine, we're not dealing with God, we're dealing with the demonic. Something very, very big. So one has to be careful and skeptic, and I understand the skeptics. But when they will see my, and they hear my story and see what uh, I have received as messages for our times from God, why not? I mean, God can speak whenever he wishes. But of course, I, I, many people will say, and who are you? I mean... Yeah, actually, it's true. God can speak anytime he wishes. And I, I, I don't think that, you know, who you are, you know, should disqualify you from so from receiving a word from God. If you look at the uh, the minor prophets in particular, um, that was uh, quite an interesting, colorful bunch, if you would. Um, and the apostles themselves, you know, they, you know, Jesus's own disciples, they were well quite a, quali- a colorful bunch. So who you are doesn't disqualify you from whether or not God is sending you a message. But the message has to be tested against an objective word of God that we know, already know we have, and that would be the Bible. So, Vasula, you know, what's your view on the Scripture? Let's uh, let's see if we can divine any of that from your comments here on Fox News. Why me? I was just then a housewife, you know. Here I am, uh, and then God manifested Himself. He can manifest himself whenever he wished to for our times. And I had the experience of God. I mean, I've, it was obvious. Now, a half a million... No, it was, uh, you had the experience. It was obvious. Well, it's not obvious to me. When people came out to hear you speak in the Philippines, you're starting to get a global um, a following that really people do want to hear what you have to say. Your new book is called Heaven is Real and So is How. You believe that you've witnessed both of those? Yes, I've seen visions because the Lord wanted to give me the visions of heaven, that heaven really exists, and of hell. Because many people like to hear only of heaven, but not hell. Now, okay, so this is true. Heaven is real and so is hell. Okay. But I don't need Vasula for this. You know what I need? God's Word. The written Word of God. Because God's Word teaches this. So why would I need Vasula to come along and... You know, affirm what God's word so clearly teaches. Hmm. Yeah, now I'm starting to get, well, more skeptical, if you would. And so that's why I had those visions of hell and heaven, but also the manifestation of who God is actually. How is he God? How is God? Because many people say, yeah, we know God, but just from a book, by reading the book. Oh, there we go. Notice the slap against the Bible there. Uh huh. That's more than a red flag. That's a red flag on fire and smoking profusely. But 
and some of them have intellectualized God, so they cannot approach God. But the, the way he approached me, and I say to people, he is approachable. He is like a father, more than a father. Because when, I, when he spoke to me... What do you mean he's approachable? Um, I dare not approach God aside from being, or apart from being covered in the shed blood of Christ. I dare not approach God in my own righteousness, but I approach him as a penitent sinner asking for mercy and forgiveness. Um, we've got, um, yeah, there's some, there's some, there's some theology here uh, that's really not good at all. So, you know, I would say there's probably a 99.9999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999
Theatre presents Church Day Select. Doesn't it bother you how some Christians are quick to argue about theology? Jesus didn't die for correct theology. Wait a minute. Did you catch the double standard in that statement? What double standard? You just said that Jesus didn't die for correct theology. Yeah, so what? Do you believe that statement is accurate? Of course I do. So if you think that statement is accurate, would it be safe to say that you think that statement is correct? Of course I think it's correct. That goes without saying. If I think the statement is accurate I obviously think it's correct. I wouldn't have made the statement if I didn't think it was accurate or correct. Did you notice that your statement was making a theological point? Well, yes, I suppose it was. So let me see if I've correctly understood the statement you made. Okay. You said it bothers you how some Christians are quick to argue theology. Yes, that's what I said. It sounds like you're saying that it bothers you that some Christians argue theology in order to prove that something that you believe or have been taught is not correct? Well, um, yes, I guess that's what I was saying. But then you made a theological argument to try to prove that Christians shouldn't argue theology. Well, um, yes. So, on the one hand you say that it bothers you that Christians argue theology in order to prove your theology wrong but then on the other hand, you turned right around and employed a theological argument in order to prove that arguing theology is wrong, that's cheating, you can't use a theological argument in order to prove that arguing theology is wrong. That's like using logic to prove that logical argumentation is wrong or using a mathematical equation to prove that using math is wrong. I knew it. Knew what? You're one of those people. What do you mean by those people? You're one of those people who loves theology more than people. What on earth are you talking about? You're a close-minded blogger who lives in her mother's basement and spends every day in her pajamas on a beanbag typing away on a laptop while eating cheetahs and drinking Mountain Dew. Purchased your airline tickets for your summer getaway yet? If not, don't pay more for your airfare, hotel room, or rental car than you need to. Long-time Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheapo Air is your one-stop shop for all of your travel needs. And we've got a special promo code for you to use at Cheapo Air to save an additional $10 off of Cheapo Air's already low prices. So visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. Write down the promo code, then click on the web banner and book your travel today. And remember, a portion of your purchase will go to support Pirate Christian Radio. That website address, again, is piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. And thank you for your support. Cowabunga. Mom. 
Mark your calendar now for April 25, 26, and 27, 2014. You see, it's not too soon to be making your plans, saving your pennies, and asking for work off April 25, 26, and 27 of 2014 for the 11th annual Branson Worldview Weekend. This past year, we had people from all over the country and actually from other countries join us in the beautiful rolling hills of Branson, Missouri. So if you're looking to attend the premier Understanding the Times Biblical Worldview Weekend, then join us April 25, 26, and 27 of 2014 for the Branson Worldview Weekend. It's for all ages. Children 11 and under are free. We also have a group rate and a family rate. The Worldview Weekends have been around since 1993. So we're one of the oldest Biblical Worldview conferences in America. So mark your calendar now for Branson, Missouri, April 25, 26, and 27, 2014. Warning anybody who claims to be receiving direct revelation and words from God, if you contradict them, you're contradicting God. So their words automatically rise to the level of Scripture. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you into the world. And you can partner with us by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see our two friendly yellow buttons. One says Donate, the other says Join Our Crew. When you join our crew, you are signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. It's a fantastic way to support us. Of course, if you would like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith, and then send it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Moving along. From Chally's.com, the article reads, Seven Marks of a False Teacher. Seven Marks of a False Teacher by Tim Chally's. Now, he claims that this was inspired by Shai Lin, okay, just so you know that. Um, And um, so here's what uh, Tim Challies writes, and he writes this today, by the way. He says, no one enriches hell more than false teachers. No one finds greater joy in drawing people away from the truth and leading them into error. False teachers have been present in every era of human history. They have always been a plague and have always been in the business of providing counterfeit truth. While their circumstances may change, their methods remain consistent. Here are the seven marks of false teachers. Number one, false teachers are man-pleasers. Yeah, let me read that again. False teachers are man-pleasers. What they teach is meant to please the ear more than profit the heart. They tickle the ears of their followers with flattery, and all the while they treat holy things with wit and carelessness rather than with reverence and awe. This contrasts sharply with a true teacher of the word who knows that he is answerable to God and who is therefore far more eager to please God than men. As Paul would say, quote, But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. That's 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 4. 
Mark number two of a false teacher. False teachers save their harshest criticism for God's most faithful servants. False teachers criticize those who teach the truth and save their sharpest criticism for those who hold most steadfastly to what is true. We see this in many places in the Bible, such as when Korah and his friends rose up against Moses and Aaron, see Numbers chapter 16, and when Paul's ministry was threatened and undermined by those critics who said that while his words were strong, he himself was weak and unimportant, see 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 10. We see it most notably in the vicious attacks of the religious authorities against Jesus. False teachers continue to rebuke and belittle God's faithful servants today. Yet, as Augustine declared, he that, will, who, he that willingly takes from my good name unwillingly adds to my reward. Mark number three of false teachers. Number three is false teachers teach their own wisdom and vision, their own wisdom and vision. (laughs) In other words, just about every single vision casting, quote, pastor is a false teacher. Um, Charlie's right. He says, this was certainly true in the days of Jeremiah when God would say, the prophets are prophesying lies in my name. I did not send them, nor did I command them or speak to them. They are prophesying to you a lying vision, worthless divination, and the deceit of their own minds. See Jeremiah 14, verse 14. I got to read that again. (laughs) It just is one of the hardest hitting passages of scripture that I think describes just about all the false teachers that we um, cover here at Fighting for the Faith. Um, Let's see. Jeremiah 14, 14. The prophets are prophesying lies in my name. I did not send them, nor did I command them or speak to them. They are prophesying to you a lying vision, worthless divination and the deceit of their own minds. Wow. (laughs) It's as if Jeremiah saw like, you know, Patricia King and. Anyway, and today, too, false teachers teach the foolishness of mere men instead of teaching the deeper, richer wisdom of God. Paul knew, quote, the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Number four, false teachers miss what is of central importance and focus instead on the small details. Jesus diagnosed this very tendency in the false teachers of his day, warning them, quote, woe to you scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. That's Matthew chapter 23, verse 23. False teachers place great emphasis on their adherence to the smaller commands, even as they ignore the greater ones. Paul warned Timothy of the one who is, quote, puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. That's 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 4 through 5. Sign number five of, or mark number five of false teachers. False teachers obscure their false doctrine behind eloquent speech and what appears to be impressive logic. 
just as a prostitute paints and perfumes herself to appear more attractive and more alluring. (laughs) Wow, what a metaphor. (laughs) He didn't pull any punches with that one, did he? Just as a prostitute paints and perfumes herself to appear more attractive and more alluring, the false teacher hides his blasphemies and dangerous doctrine behind powerful arguments and eloquent use of language. He offers to his listeners the spiritual equivalent of a poisonous pill coated in gold. Though it may appear beautiful and valuable, it is still deadly. Mark number six of false teachers. False teachers are more concerned with winning others to their opinions than in helping and bettering them. This was another of Jesus' diagnosis as he considered the religious rulers of his day. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte, and when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a a child of hell as yourselves. Matthew 23, verse 15. False teachers are ultimately not in the business of bettering the lives and saving souls, but of convincing minds and winning followers. Number seven, the last of the seven marks of false teachers, is false teachers exploit their followers. Peter would warn of this danger, saying, but false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing up upon themselves swift destruction. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. That's First Peter chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. The false teachers exploit those who follow them because they are greedy and desire the riches of this world. This being true, will always teach principles that indulge the flesh. False teachers are concerned with your goods, not your good. They want to serve themselves more than save the lost. They are content for Satan to have your soul as long as they can have your stuff. <laughs> Great article by Tim Challies. Again, Tim Challies, you can find this at challies.com. The name of the article is Seven Marks of a False Teacher. I think he did a fantastic job there talking about false teachers who want your stuff. <clears throat> it's time to do this. When I'm feeling lonely, sad as I can be, all by myself in an uncharted island in an endless sea. What makes me happy fills me up with glee. Those bones in my jaw that don't have a flaw, my shiny teeth and me. My shiny teeth that twinkle just like the stars in space. Uh, am, am I causing your ears to bleed yet? Shiny teeth that glisten Just like a Christmas tree You know I walk a mile Just to see me smile Woo! Shiny teeth and me. All right. Yeah, that's uh, Chip Skylark and My Shiny Teeth and Me. That's the music we use to introduce Joel Osteen here at Fighting for the Faith and uh, his uh, Word of Faith Heresy Light. It's not even really light. It's kind of like, 
um, a well-hidden version of the Word of Faith heresy that he engages in. And uh, like I pointed out at the, uh, at the intro, the beginning part of today's episode of Fighting for the Faith, when we're talking about Joel Osteen's theology, people will think, oh, you know, I love Joel Osteen. He's so positive, and he makes me feel so good about myself. And what could possibly be wrong with somebody who has such a positive message as uh, Joel Osteen has. Well, actually, that's kind of the problem, is that um, if you uh, really believe the theology that Joel Osteen teaches and preaches, um, you believe in magic. And not only do you believe in magic, you believe that your words, either good or bad, will create your future. Okay? Now think about this for a second, okay? Um, when was the last time you were fearing for your life if you ever sang along with that jingle that shows up from time to time on the television uh, touting the the wonderfulness of Oscar Mayer wieners? Okay, you, you, you all know the song, right? Oh, I wish I were an Oscar Mayer wiener because everyone would be in love with me, right? Well, those are our words, right? And so you're singing, you wish you were an Oscar Mayer wiener. Well, how many of you out there are afraid that if you were to sing that song, that God would, poof, cause you to become, well, an Oscar Mayer wiener. Uh, and when was the last time, you know, that you had a large rainstorm blowing through your neck of the woods and, uh, and you know, your husband or wife came into the house and said, whew, it's raining cats and dogs out there. And they said, no, no, no don't say that. Don't, 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 just don't do that. No. Oh. Now there's going to be cats and dogs all over the place. You know, <laughs> no one thinks that way, right? Right. There's a reason why. It's because the theology that Joel Osteen is preaching isn't true. We all know this intuitively. We don't fear that if you sing the Oscar Mayer Wiener song that you're going to become an Oscar Mayer Wiener. Or if your spouse says, oh, it's raining cats and dogs out there, that that means that the future, you know, it's going to go from raindrops to, you know, to animals falling out of the sky. No one thinks in those terms. But see, the thing is, if you believe Joel Osteen's theology, then you are believing in magic, that your words create reality, either good or bad. Now, to make this point, I will be now playing for you the first four paragraphs, not three, first four paragraphs from the introduction to Joel Osteen's book, I Declare. This is one of his most recent books, and I want you to hear him for himself, talk about how, how our words have creative power and negative or positive and how he catches himself so that he doesn't accidentally say negative things. Why? Because, well, Joel Osteen is almost superstitious. He has a magical worldview. And then we're going to talk about when this theology gets into the church. What's the impact it has on church folks? Or, you know, you know, listen in. Here's Joel Osteen, again, the first four paragraphs of his book, from the intro of his book, I Declare. Here we go. Our words have creative power. Whenever we speak something, either good or bad, we give life to what we're saying. Too many people say negative things about themselves, about their families, and about their futures. They say things like, I'll never be successful. This sickness will get the best of me. Business is so slow, I don't think I'll make it. They don't realize they are prophesying their futures. 
The scripture says, now in the written book, it says, he also says, flu season is coming and I'll probably catch it. So notice what he said. Okay. Our words have creative power. Whenever we speak something either good or bad, we give life to what we are saying. Too many people say negative things about themselves, their families, about their futures. They say things such as, I'll never be successful. This sickness will get the best of me. Business is slow. I don't, I don't think I'll make it. The flu season is coming. I'll probably catch it. And he says they don't realize they are prophesying their futures. By the way, folks, the Bible does not teach this. This is magic. And there's a very dark, tyrannical side to this. We'll, we'll talk about that in a minute. But let's continue. It says, we will eat the fruit of our words. That means we will get exactly what we've been saying. Now, let me back that up so you can hear that again in context. Here we go. They don't realize they are prophesying their futures. The scripture says, we will eat the fruit of our words. That means we will get exactly what we've been saying. No, actually, that's not what the Bible means there. Saying that we'll eat the fruit of our words is not saying that our words create the future. That is a complete mismanagement uh, and twisting of what that passage says. Now, this is important. You will never see Joel Osteen engaging in sound exegesis and reading things in context. The only thing he knows how to do is to proof text his false theology, and he does it using the kind of the Rick Warren uh, method of hermeneutics. He takes... The Bible out of context uses different translations and paraphrases and then proof text the things that he's saying. If you're going to engage in real sound biblical doctrine, you begin with the scriptures and what they say in context, and then you exegete out the meaning that's there in context. Joel Osteen doesn't do it. He engages in Bible twisting and proof texting of this magic worldview that he's uh, promoting here. But let's continue. Here's the key. You've got to send your words out in the direction you want your life to go. You cannot talk defeat and expect to have victory. You can't talk lack and expect to have abundance. You will produce exactly what you say. If you want to know what you're going to be like five years from now, just listen to what you're saying about yourself. With our words, we can either bless our futures or we can curse our futures. That's why we should never say things like, I'm not a good parent. I'm unattractive. I'm clumsy. I can't do anything right. Now, those thoughts may come to your mind, but don't make the mistake of verbalizing them. The, the reason why you don't verbalize them is because if you say them, then you're cursing yourself and prophesying your future. Listen to what he does then with this. The moment you speak it out, you allow them to take root. There have been plenty of times where I've thought something negative. I'm just about to say it, but I'll catch myself and think, no, I'm not speaking defeat into my future. I'm not speaking failure over my life. I'm going to turn it around and speak favor into my future. I will declare I'm blessed, I'm strong, I'm healthy. This will be a great year. When you do that, you are blessing your future. Okay, now that's the first four paragraphs of the introduction to Joel Osteen's book, his book I Declare. And that sets up his theology perfectly. And what I mean by that is, is that now that you've understood this principle, it's real simple. What you say will create your future. If you say something negative, 
then your future is going to have negative outcomes. If you're if you say positive things about your future, then your future will have positive outcomes. This, by the way, folks, is witchcraft. This is magic. This is not what the Bible says, and it doesn't teach this in context anywhere. Now, looking to somebody like the Reverend Bob Lico of Discernment Ministries International, um, this is a man who spent time in the Word of Faith movement, and um, he is no longer in the Word of Faith movement. He is a, uh, a Lutheran pastor. And here's what he wrote regarding the tyranny of words and this particular theology and the tyranny that it creates. And I again, think of you know Joel Osteen in this case as something really wrong in kind of a Stepford Wives kind of way. Here's what Bob Lico writes. He says, uh, one more serious flaw with Joel's doctrine is that it puts those who adhere to it in bondage. I experienced this personally as a Word of Faith pastor many years ago. I learned I could not know how any member of the congregation was really doing by asking the members, asking a Pentecostal charismatic person, how are you doing, will elicit a response of, oh, pastor, I am blessed in the city, blessed in the field, why I'm the head and not the tail, blessed by the Almighty God, filled with the Spirit, growing from faith to faith and glory to glory. Joel Osteen, as a pastor, does not want to hear about how big your problems are. He wants to hear how big your God is. And Joel's people are afraid to confess the truth because they will then dig up and cancel out their hopefully sprouting faith-filled words by speaking negative, reality-as-it-is words. This places people under a tremendous weight— They must watch their words at every waking moment. They must be careful who they associate with because negative people can also hinder one's receiving. Every thought must be held captive to whatever dream, vision, hope one is trying to create. Any thought to the contrary, even warning from the Lord to what you are declaring is automatically consigned to Satan and is cast down. Once one starts down the path, there is no turning back unless the goal is willingly forfeited by the practitioner. There is also the agony of doubt created by such a subjective concept. Faith-filled words only produce when they are spoken from the heart and not the head or the mind. Their view is of a man as a tripartite being comprised of spirit, soul, and body. The spirit is reborn. The soul, mind, will, emotions must be renewed by the word. Then together, these two uh, will control the body. The only way they can know for certain that they are speaking true faith-filled words is when they receive what they are confessing. Remember, these folks are either trying to confess the dream in their heart or they are confessing things mentally to get them down in their spirit. In either case, the acid test is the obtaining of whatever is being sought. Since generally the things being sought do not arrive automatically, one must be prepared to begin confessing and then never stop until the manifestation, even if it takes many, many, many years. Since Joel is very clear that this spiritual law works every time, 
it is properly it, it, every time that it is properly used i would like him to explain these various events in light of this doctrine how did his father john end up on kidney dialysis for several years prior to his death that's john osteen how uh, john taught joel all about confession that brings possession yet john osteen did not receive his deliverance from kidney failure nor did he receive healing from the heart problems which eventually took his life. Also, the positive confessions of his entire church for John Osteen while he was in the hospital were also of no avail. I will not go into the prophetic words that said John would live and not die, but he died anyway. How is it that his mother got cancer in the first place? We rejoiced over God's grace in restoring her, but she should not have gotten ill to begin with. How did that cancer spirit gain entrance? Why did his sister Lisa's first marriage end in divorce? I know beyond any doubt that much confession went up prior to the marriage and during it. Why didn't those words work? These are great questions. The tyranny of words. So what we're dealing with is those people who are buying into Joel Osteen's, well, it's not really a theology, because true theology is talking, uh, these are God words. It's the study of what God has revealed. God hasn't taught this doctrine, but those who buy into this lie, this heresy, are now in bondage. They're in bondage to the positive. They can't dare say that things are going badly in their lives. If they're, if things are blowing up, they've lost their job, you know, things like that. They can't say that. They can't say it. And in Stepford plastic, inauthentic fashion, they are now under the bondage of the smiley face. Why? Because, it, well, in this magical worldview, if they say how things really are, they're digging up their faith-filled words and can't expect God to act on their faith because they're not showing faith, they're showing doubt, and God doesn't reward that. Wow, what a tyranny. Absolute tyranny indeed. I mean, so think about that. Next time somebody talks about how positive Joel Osteen is, I mean, that's what, you know, if you have friends who watch his program, that's what they're going to say, you know, oh, I just love Joel Osteen. Oh, you know, I know he's a little thin in the scriptures. And <laughs> you think, thin? a little? Yeah, just a little thin? Yeah, it's it's a lot more than a little thin. Um, but to, you know, they'll say, oh, I, I understand that he's just a little thin. But every time I listen to him, he just makes me feel so good about myself. I mean, he's so positive, and I mean, he's got big smiley teeth. I mean, I you know what could possibly be wrong with Joel Osteen? And the answer is, that's what's wrong with Joel Osteen. It's the tyranny of the positive. Caused by a magical worldview, um, you know, in you know, in the witchcraft kind of sense that isn't taught in Scripture that holds its people in bondage, bondage to, uh, well, this idea of the positive because you always got to say your faith-filled words. You got to only speak the positive in order to prophesy your future into existence. That means you can't say I'm not feeling well. You can't say I'm depressed. You can't say I'm angry. You can't communicate anything going wrong in your life. To do so, well, is to uh, undo everything that you know, you've been working so hard in sowing those faith-filled positive words.
Again, it's absolute, utter tyranny. And this is not what Scripture teaches at all. Think of it. You know, Jesus tells the parable of the two men that went into the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee, and the other was a tax collector. Remember the story? And what did the Pharisee say about himself? He said nothing but positive words. In fact, let me pull that up, and let me read to you the text here. It's in Luke chapter 18, and I'll start at verse 10. Here's what it says. Jesus is giving this parable. He says, Two men went up into the temple to pray. One a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus. Notice all these positive words here. God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners of the unjust or adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. You know, boy, he was really smitten with himself, wasn't he? All those positive words. Look how wonderful he is. They'll talk about a positive confession, if you would. But, but notice the negative words of the tax collector. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but he beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. No, you don't say that. You Don't say you're a sinner because you're prophesying over your future. You can't. No, no, no. You. Uh-huh. That's what he did. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. He spoke the truth. He said the truth, and the truth is ugly. The truth is negative. It's not pretty, right? And Jesus said, I tell you this, man, the tax collector went to his house justified, declared righteous by God, rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. All right, we're up on our second break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you could do so. My email address is talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com, or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, at pirate Christian. Quick break. When we come back, we're going to go to Audacious Church in Manchester in the United Kingdom. Listening to a sermon about favor? Stay tuned. Don't want to miss it. We'll be right back. If you want advice on how to have your best life now, you're in the wrong place. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. Pirate Christian Radio Theater presents Death of a Salesman. Are ye a salesman? Why, yes, I am. Can I interest you in some... listening to Byron Christian Radio. Have you purchased your airline tickets for your summer getaway yet? If not, don't pay more for your airfare, hotel room, or rental car than you need to. Long-time Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheapo Air is your one-stop shop for all of your travel needs. And 
we've got a special promo code for you to use at Cheapo Air to save an additional $10 off of Cheapo Air's already low prices. So visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, then click on the web banner and book your travel today. And remember... A portion of your purchase will go to support Pirate Christian Radio. That website address, again, is piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. And thank you for your support. Cowabunga. Come in. What was I just doing, you might ask? Well, I just conquered the outer rim planet of Pico Pond with my trusty double barreled nuclear plasma cannon. Well, I just did in this video game. But how is it possible for someone like myself to play 13 hours straight and not get a headache? It's quite simple, really. It's because I wear gunners. When I'm rocking these babies, I'm unstoppable. Not limited to just games, mind you. Oh no! I rock the spreadsheet, the PowerPoint, the word processor, and when that's all done, I hop my T-16 and fry me some toasters. If you want to get in on the action, then head over to piratechristianradio.com forward slash gunners. You gotta see it to believe it. number two of fighting for the faith sermon review time again at the end of the sermon one of the weirdest things i've ever heard and if you know hebrew you'd never make this mistake one of the weirdest misunderstandings of scripture ever and i've heard some whoppers this is just one of those ones that makes you go well uh, what but let's do this right Good, the bad, the ugly. We review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. We're an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service. I'm beginning to wonder if I actually review sermons most of the time here. They, they, they take place during the sermon time, what would normally be considered sermon time in a uh, Christian church. Um, but they don't really look or sound like sermons. Um, this... Um, <clears throat> So anyway, we're going to be going to Audacious Church in Manchester in the United Kingdom and listen to Glenn Barrett and his um, oration, Masloration, on Extraordinary Favor. And the reason I picked it is because it fits oh so well with the tyranny of positive words concept that we've uh, been discussing here at Fighting for the Faith regarding the word of faith heresy. Glenn Barrett obviously being one of these guys who's into that. So, in fact, let me just do this. I'm going to kill the music, and without any further ado, here is Glenn Barrett and his um, sermon entitled Extraordinary Favor. Here we go. 
I don't know if you remember, just stay standing. I don't know if you remember that last year we were talking about the power of our words, the power of declaration. And we were saying this, that if you want to know what the principal purpose of speech is, you have to go back and look at the primary use or the first usage of it. Now notice this is Joel Osteen's heresy. And the first use of speech is not communication. The first use of speech is creation. Because when God speaks, first spoke, he didn't look at the darkness and say, wow, look how dark the darkness is. Darkness, you are so naughty for being so dark. He didn't even have a conversation. He just said, let there be, and there was. Now in the New Testament, we understand something called prophecy. uh, Hebrews 11 says we frame our world by our words. So every time you open your mouth, you are framing your day, you're framing your... Again, proof texting, these passages do not mean that in context. In your environment, you're framing your season. So this is what we're going to do now. We're going to prophesy this. We're going to frame our week and our life through this statement. You are prophesying right now, and then we're going to preach it. Here we go. Let's say it together. I have extraordinary favor. Now that would be okay. Last night I approached. So they said, I have extraordinary favor. They're using their positive words, their faith-filled words, to speak their future into existence, to create it. So Audacious Church is one of those places where you dare not say the truth about how things are going in your life. You must only say the positive lest you prophesy the negative and it comes about. I preached at a, a Methodist conference. And i got to tell you, I got up from my first session. I said, this is not a Methodist conference. I have never been. I mean, their music, I mean, you know, I mean, it was unbelievable. And at one point, I actually, during my message, I just, I just started to speak in tongues as I was telling a story. And I stopped and I went, can I do that here? And they said, yeah, you can do that here. So I did. It was awesome. Now, listen, I want to tell you, this audacious church, if the Methodists can make us look quiet last night, then I reckon we can go to a whole new level this morning. We're going to declare this. We're going to prophesy it. Here we go. I have... One more time. I... Why don't you grab a seat? Uh, we've, we've had a technical meltdown down the back. I- See, it's not, I'm a sinner, Lord have mercy on me. It's, oh, I have extraordinary favor. Do they? They're not repentant. They're not trusting in Christ for the forgiveness of their sins. They're flat out speaking lies at this point and fooling themselves and deceiving themselves into thinking they have God's favor. And God's favor doesn't have anything to do with being in Christ, penitent and forgiven. I had a, a moment of inspiration this morning and brought a clip that I wanted to show you from, from uh, a Disney, uh, Disney Pixar. But, but, but it's the cat, I don't know what's going on, but it's not working. But I was reminded this morning as I was praying, it's amazing what happens when you pray, hey? Uh, this morning when I woke up, uh, uh, everyone's still in bed and I go downstairs to, to the kitchen and I felt like I wanted 46 grams of shreddies because that's how many I eat every day. 46 grams of shreddy with, a, with some bananas and I looked, there's no bananas. I said, that's okay, I'll just have 46 grams of shreddies. So put the shreddies in the bowl and I weighed it. Yeah, it was 46 grams. I think that's awesome. 46 grams of shreddies. Just making sure I'm just looking after my weight. And then I went to the fridge and I got the fridge and I opened the lid off the fridge. And how many of you know the milk uh, was off? And so now I've got no shreddies. And so now I'm feeling sad. I go in, in, into, in, into, you know, my office and it's Father's Day and, and I've got no shreddies to eat and I've got no milk and there's no bananas and I'm feeling sorry for myself. And then there's a knock at the door as my kids and my wife come in with presents. 
And Sophie says, we've got to make you a cooked breakfast. And I'm like, awesome. And in that moment of inspiration, I was reminded of that great truth, the Toy Story. There's a moment in Toy Story where Buzz and Woody, they go to, to Pizza Planet because if you remember, Woody throws Buzz out the window and, and this thing happens and they end up in Pizza Planet and they end up in, the, in this kind of canister with all these aliens. Do you know the Bible says in 1 Peter that you and I, we are aliens and strangers just passing through and there's this moment where Buzz says to the aliens, who's in charge here? And the aliens say, it's the claw. You know that scene? And you look up and there is a claw. And, and come on, we've all done this, haven't we? You, you, you actually think that, that you, unlike the person before you that you saw, missed the toy, you think that you're better. So you put your pound coin in and you control that claw, you know, in order to pick up the toy. But you're like everybody else. You keep losing the pound. It's the claw. You know, sometimes I think that we think we're like the aliens out of Toy Story, that we're in this canister called life. Who's in charge? It's the claw. And there's this moment where the claw comes down, takes um, Buzz, and Buzz gets lifted up, and Woody hangs onto his foot, and they're both being lifted up, and, and the aliens are saying, you have been chosen. It's the claw. And it's this incredible thing. You know, sometimes I think as Christians, as children of God, we think that we are those aliens, and we go through life waiting for the claw of favor to choose us, to pick us up, to take us to a better place place. This, this alien, this alien gets lifted up and he says, I go to a better world. Sometimes we think it's the same with God. We're just aimlessly wandering through. We're going to pray enough. We're going to tithe. We're going to go to church. We're going to go to brotherhood prayer. We're going to go to life groups. We're actually going to be a steward. We're going to serve once a month. We're going to be a champion of the house. We're going to do all these sort of things. And we're waiting for the claw. Meanwhile, we see other aliens all around the place getting picked up by the claw of the hand of God for this better life. I mean, what is this about favor? Psalm 5 says this, but surely, O Lord, surely, It's speaking of certainty. Some things are certain. Surely, certainly, Lord, you bless the righteous. The word bless means to be fortunate, to be envied. You bless the righteous. You surround them. In other words, it's inescapable. You cannot escape it. You surround them with your favor. And then who are the righteous? Those who are clothed in the righteousness of God by faith. American spelling, young people, favor as with a shield, it's your protection. You cannot escape the favor of God. We do not live in this canister with all these other aliens, you know, with this claw of favor descending at any moment of time. Kind of, you know, somebody else. And what is it about favor? You know, that person that you know who comes to church and they always land on their feet. What is it about them? They come, you say to them, how you doing? And they say, great. You're like, that's great. What's been great? Well, I've just, I've just I, had, I had a good job, says Amy Burton. But now I've just got the job of my dreams. And you're like, you're like, great. But on the inside, you really feel like squeezing her hand. It's, it's good for you. Yeah, and then you can't actually say how things are really going because then you would undo God's favor with your creative words by creating a negative future. What about, how come the claw has found you? What about me? 
We end up other people being blessed. And there's, you know, these people who just keep getting blessed. They, they rock up in a new car. They've got a new relationship or the old relationship is as new as the day the relationship first got together. And they're blessed and they're blessed and they're blessed. And you really want to, you know, rejoice with those who rejoice because you read it in some book somewhere. Rejoice with those who rejoice. When in actual fact, really what you want to do is just punch them in the head. Because they're blessed and flavor favored and the claw just keeps picking them up. The claw keeps picking them up. And you're kind of like, what about me? So what is it about favor? What is it about this extraordinary favor? I have extraordinary favor. Come on, I want you to say it with me again. I have extraordinary favor. Just because you say you have it, that means you have it. This isn't taught in the Bible. This is just witchcraft. We're going to go to a passage in Scripture, a book, which is all about favor. We're going to look at the book of Ruth. Now, I guess it would be customary for us at this point to look at Ruth, but we're not going to look at Ruth. We're going to look at her mother-in-law, Naomi. And chapter 1, verse 1 of the book of Ruth says this. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a man from Bethlehem in... You know, the book of Ruth, by the way, Again, one of the most amazing books that points us to Christ. This is a story that just just kind of, kind of comes out of nowhere. And it the people who appear in it appear in the genealogy of Christ. It doesn't quite have an anchor point uh in in judges or in other books. It just it one of these ones that sticks out and it's a beautiful beautiful picture of how our crucified and risen Savior, well, he's our kinsman redeemer. It's all about Christ. It's typological types and shadows of, of Christ. In fact, I might have to spend some time just working through it so that uh, we can undo this bad teaching that we're about to hear. Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab, Elimelech was his name with his wife, Naomi, and his two boys. Here we have Elimelech, Naomi, and their boys living in Bethlehem. Bethlehem meaning the place of bread. Bethlehem we later to know to be the the city chosen by God where Jesus, the Messiah, would be born. And here they are in Bethlehem, in the place of bread. But the irony was this, that in the place of bread, there was in fact a famine. So on Monday night around the tea table, they're sitting down having a conversation. They've just got a few scraps that Naomi has kind of been able to pull together because of the famine. They're drinking some some wine and they're eating just small portions. And Elimelech sighs and says to his wife and two boys, says, guys, I've heard that over the border in Moab, there's food. And I'm thinking to myself that maybe what we should do is we should sell up and we should leave everything we know. Let's leave Bethlehem and go across the border to this foreign land because it seems like things are going better there. Naomi asks a few questions of Elimelech. Elimelech, do you have any family there? Well, no. Do we know anyone there? No, but it seems like that's where the favor is. If we go over there, it would seem like if we go over there. And in the midst of this conversation, common sense prevails. But I want to declare to you, church, this morning that common sense needs to bow the knee to God's sense. And Elimelech moves his family to another place 
in search of something. Common sense, as we read in the following few verses, common sense ended up with Naomi losing her husband, Elimelech. Elimelech died in Moab, and the two boys also die in Moab. You see, it seemed to be the right thing to do, to leave the famine. But what Elimelech and Naomi failed to realize was that even in the famine, there is favor in the famine. What are you talking about? The story of Ruth is not about uh, the Ruth uh, Ruth and Naomi is not about chasing after the favor. That's not what this book is about at all, and it's not a very long book. It's only four chapters long. Let's read it. I, I, this is one of my favorite stories in all of Scripture. Uh, Ruth, chapter one, verse one. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Mahlon and Chilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left there with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of one was Orpah, and the name of the other was Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Mahlon and Chilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Now notice, here in the first five verses, there's no judgment given against Elimelech or or their sons or anything like that, they died. They were sojourning there because of a famine. Verse 6, So then she arose with her daughters-in-law and returned from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and had given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to, uh, to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt uh, with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. And then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices, and they wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters, Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters, go your way, for I too am old. I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. So then they lifted up their voices and they wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Hmm. So here we have a Moabite woman from a country that is not Israel, born and raised in idolatry. 
And she will not leave Naomi and says, Your God will be my God. And indeed, he is already her God. But we continue reading. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord, Yahweh, do to do so to me and more, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the woman said, and the women said, Is this Naomi? And she said to them, Do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara. Okay, Naomi, by the way, means pleasant, but Mara means bitter. She says, don't call me Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi, when the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So Naomi returned and Ruth, the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. Now, I'm going to pause there for a second. I want you to point something, I want to point something out here. Notice here that Naomi has said that the Lord has brought calamity on me. He has dealt bitterly with me. Her circumstances have not been good by any accounts of the word good, if we were to judge it, by earthly standards, or even according to the standards of Joel Osteen's theology. And according to Joel Osteen's theology, what Naomi has just done here is cursed her future. Okay, Notice what she said, that the Lord has done has dealt bitterly, bitter, bitterly with me. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. So she's now speaking all these negative words. According to Joel Osteen's theology and according to the theology of Audacious Church, what has she done here? She hasn't called favor down upon her. She's called curses upon herself. She has literally sabotaged her future with her creative words by creating negativity in her future. But is that how this plays out? No. Because the theology of Joel Osteen and Glenn Barrett, this word of faith heresy, is not what Scripture says. Let's see if God now curses her future for her negative words. We'll see. So Naomi returned, and uh, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. Now Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, Let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him, in whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, Go, my daughter. Now, I'm going to pause here, just a quick historical note. In the Mosaic Law, God forbids, absolutely forbids people while they're harvesting to pick up the gleanings. These are, uh, you know, think of it as, you know, know, pieces of wheat and things like that of the harvest that have fallen down to the ground, okay? And the reason why he does this is so that the poor can be fed. So whatever drops to the ground, whatever gleanings there are, God has created a provision for people who are poverty-stricken so they don't die, but can legally and protectedly, and basically with God's stamp of approval, the poor then follow those who are harvesting their fields, and whatever drops to the ground, that's theirs. God provides for the poor. We continue. 
So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Limelech. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem, and he said to the reapers, The Lord be with you. And they answered, The Lord bless you. And then Boaz said to his his young man, who was in charge of the reapers, Whose young woman is this? And the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, She is the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. Okay, now she's related to him by marriage, although she is a widow. Okay, She is the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. She said, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came, and she has continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. So then Boaz said to Ruth, now listen, my daughter. Do not glean in any other field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men to not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. Again, a great kindness here. Stay with me. My people will protect you. My men will not harm you. Drink whatever you need to drink. Wonderful, wonderful Christ-like attributes here, right? Because he, Boaz in the story, is a type. He is a type and shadow of Christ himself. And who is this Moabite woman? Well, answer, in a very real way, she's us. This is the bride of Christ, right? Unclean, raised in idolatry grafted into Israel. You think of think of you know think of this as the Gentile portion of the bride of Christ, if you would. And watch what happens in this story. Beautiful story. We continue. So then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and she said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes, that you should take notice of me, since I am a foreigner? But Boaz answered her, All that you have done for your mother in law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me, and how you left your father and your mother in your native land and came to people that you did not know before. Yahweh, the Lord, repay you for what you have done, and a full reward be given to you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wing you have come to take refuge. So then she said, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants. Now at mealtime, Boaz said to her, Come here and eat some bread and dip your morsel in the wine. So she sat beside the reapers, and he passed to her roasted grain, and she ate until she was satisfied, and she had some left over. When she rose to glean, Boaz instructed his young men, saying, Let her glean even among the sheaves, and do not reproach her. And also, Pull out some from the bundles for her and leave it for her to glean. Do not rebuke her. So she gleaned in the field until evening, and then she beat out what she had gleaned, and it was about an ephah of barley. And she took it up and went into the city. Her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. She also brought out and gave her what food she had left over after being satisfied. Notice she, she even took some of her meal home to care for Naomi, right? 
And so her mother-in-law said to her, Where did you glean today? And where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, The man's name with whom I work today is Boaz. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, May he be blessed by the Lord, whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi also said to her, The man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. You have to be blind to not see the connection between Boaz and Jesus, right? Jesus is our redeemer. He redeems the bride of Christ. And Ruth, the Moabite, said, Besides, he said to me, You shall keep close by my young men until they have finished all my harvest. And Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, It is good, my daughter, that you go out with his young women, lest in any other field you be assaulted. So she kept close to the young women of Boaz, gleaning until the end of the barley and the wheat harvests, and she lived with her mother-in-law. Chapter 3 So then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter... Should I not seek rest for you, that it may be well with you? Is not Boaz our relative with whose young women you were? See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Wash, therefore, anoint yourself, and put on your cloak, and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies, and then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. And she replied, All that you say... I will do. So she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. And then she came softly and uncovered his feet. And then she lay down. Now at midnight, the man was startled and turned over and behold, a woman was laying at his feet. And he said, who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant for you are a redeemer. And he said, May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first, in that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do all that you ask, for all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. And now it is true that I am a redeemer, but there is a redeemer nearer than I. Remain tonight and in the morning. If he will redeem you, well, good, let him do it. But if he is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until the morning. Now, part of what's going on here in this redemption is, is that Naomi is a woman, and the inheritance that should have gone to her oldest son, well, he's dead, and both of her sons are dead. And so part of what's going on here is that Boaz is literally saying he's willing to marry Ruth in order to bear son, you know, sons. The first son would not even be really considered his. That's the weird part. It would be considered um it would be considered Elimelech's firstborn son's son. There's some weird stuff going on here, but that's how the the law works. And I mean, he is acting really truly selflessly in all of this, and yet God is blessing him. So, verse 14, So she lay at his feet until the morning, arose before no one could recognize another, and he said, 
let it be done that the woman came to the threshing. Uh, let it be known that the woman came to the uh, threshing floor, and he said, "Bring the garment you were wearing and hold it out." So she held it, and he measured out six measures of barley and put it on her. And then she went into the city. And when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, "How did you fare, my daughter?" And then she told her all that the man had done for her, saying, "These six measures of barley he gave to me, for he said to me, you must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law.'" She replied, Wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out, for the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there, and behold, the Redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, Turn aside, friend, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. And he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, Sit down here. So they sat down. Then he said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you, uh, tell, it, uh, tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. And he said, well, then I will redeem it. And here's the fun part. So then Boaz said, Well, the day you buy the field from my hand, from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth, the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. You see, he's willing to buy this property as long as it, hey, I can, oh, I'll just add this onto my inheritance, right? Nuh-uh. Comes with the woman, and the woman, the goal, the purpose is, is that you marry this woman in order to perpetuate the name of her, her dead husband. Well, this, this is a different story altogether. So then the Redeemer said, <clears throat> I cannot redeem it for myself lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Now, this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging to confirm a transaction. The one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other, and this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, Buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, You are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Chilion and to Mahlon, also Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Mahlon, I have bought to be my wife to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance." that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses to this day. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore Judah, because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this woman. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. And he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Then the woman said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a Redeemer, and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your, for your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. 
So then Naomi took the child and laid him on their lap, on her lap, and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Abinadab. Abinadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse. Jesse fathered David. So right here in the middle of the generations of Jesus, as we follow that scarlet thread of history from the Garden of Eden and Adam and Eve all the way up to Mary and Joseph, here in the middle of the story is this beautiful, beautiful love story. A story of a Redeemer. A Redeemer who redeemed selflessly a woman who was a foreigner, a Gentile, and she got grafted in to the line of Jesus. And Boaz is a perfect, wonderful picture of Christ. And, well, Ruth, she's a picture of the church, a foreigner raised in idolatry, redeemed, whose God becomes the one true God and who takes care of her and redeems her. It's just an absolutely fantastic story, and there's so much you could do with this to point us to our Savior Jesus, who purchased us out of slavery to sin, death, and the devil. Even though we were born dead in trespasses and sins and at war with him, he, well, he purchases us with his own blood. And we, all of us together, are the bride of Christ, the church. Beautiful, beautiful imagery here. And notice, let me come back to a point that I made earlier. Remember Naomi? She said all those negative things. Did she curse her future? No, not at all. She didn't curse her future. Look what happened. God restored her, sent her a redeemer, when everything was at its darkest and direst, when things were at their absolute worst, when it looks like the last chapter was going to be written, there was one more. The story changes. Out of the blue comes a Redeemer. Out of the blue comes one whom God sends to rescue. And that's our story as well as theirs. That This story, type and shadow. What we see in the New Testament, fulfillment, and it's for me, and it's for you. And it's beautiful because God demonstrates his love for us. In that while we were yet sinners, Christ, our Redeemer, died for our sins. This is the story of Ruth. This is what's going on in this story. And again, I'm barely doing it justice. Because I'm kind of, in a, in a real sense, I'm just winging it barely had time. If I were teaching through this, there would be a lot more that I would have have to bring to bear. This is the kind of lesson that would take several hours to really begin to unpack the significance of what's going on here. But this isn't a story about claiming God's favor or following God's favor or speaking God's favor, as Glenn Barrett would have us believe. This is about God showing his favor to those, well, who are not worthy of it. 
because that's just how forgiving and merciful and gracious our God is. Let's continue. In all of our lives, we walk through seasons of famine, seasons that may be financial seasons of famine. There may be relational seasons of famine. There may be seasons of famine in in that work environment. In our studies, emotionally, we may walk through seasons of famine. Mentally, even spiritually, there can be times where we come to church and we lift our hands, but in actual fact, our spirit is not alive to the things of God. It feels like there is favor there, there, is, there is famine going on within our spirit. But church, we've got to know something, that God is a God of favor. And even when there is famine, there is still favor in the famine. It seemed to make sense for Elimelech and Naomi and the boys to walk towards Moab because that's where the food was. That seemed to be where the prosperity was. They took the steps that made sense. My question is this, is what happens when the steps make sense, but the destination feels wrong? They're making, it seems, the right steps, but the destination is all wrong. Well, the Bible says this, the steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord. We have no understanding here. There's no mention that Elimelech and Naomi sought God about God's wisdom for their steps. They just, in the midst of famine, thought we are going to move away from this place. We're going to move to somewhere new. Elimelech thought to himself, I'd rather be in a better place than be in God's place. I remember when Sophie and I moved to England 18 years ago, we had this incredible opportunity to become youth pastors in a church in Sydney. There were 400 teenagers in the youth program on a Friday night alone, 4,000 people in the church, and it seemed to be like a good place. It seemed to be a great place. In fact, it seemed to be the best place we could put ourselves. And we went and we did a weekend at the church. We did a Sunday, we did a Friday, and this church was massive, and the church is even bigger still today. It has continued to grow, and it seemed to be the better place of the two options we had. You see, the two options we had were Sydney or Sheffield. Sheffield promised 120 people and 12 teenagers in the youth group. Sydney promised 4,000 in the church and 400 teenagers in a youth ministry. Sheffield promised a salary of about 10,000 pounds. Sydney promised a salary of 40,000 pounds. Sheffield promised no car. Sydney promised a car, all expenses paid. I'm here to tell you, one looked like the better place. And also, Sydney had something called the sun. I tweeted Instagram on Friday. I said this. I said, can you believe this spring weather? Took a picture outside. I actually put two Instagram pictures. One um, saying it was 12 degrees in Manchester. And then the next Instagram shot was a shot outside my street of all the rain hitting the road. And I was inundated with tweets from people all around the place that said, it's not spring, it's summer. But I want to tell you that in your life, Common sense and better sense and the better place needs to bow the knee to what God says, to God's place. He says, my ways are higher than your ways. My thoughts are not your thoughts. Your thoughts are not my thoughts. I live in a completely different dimension to you. Not everything that makes sense may necessarily be the God step for you. But here's what I discovered, church. God's steps lead to God destinations. And we are here today because of God's steps 18 years ago that we made. 
I guess you would be maybe in another church in and around Greater Manchester somewhere. I guess that would be the case. But we are here because of God's steps 18 years ago. God's steps that didn't make great sense or common sense, but they were certainly the God's steps. We read on in this passage in Ruth chapter 1, we, 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 we skip through just, just four verses. And in the following four verses, Naomi's husband Elimelech dies, her two sons die. And in verse 6, it says this, it says, When she, that is Naomi, heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them. She's in in Moab, and she's hearing that God is preventing, is beginning to provide. You see, she's beginning to understand that not only is there favor in the famine, but there's also favor over there. It's so clear that he is utterly clueless as to what this story is about. It's about Jesus. And I think for us, church, it's important for us to get this revelation that even though at times it may not seem like God is here with us over here, even when it doesn't feel like God is over here, in your situation over here now, it doesn't firstly mean that he's not there because he promises to never leave you nor forsake you. But when you can't see him working over here, it does not mean that he's not working. You see, when you can't see God working over here, he's often working over there. That certainly happened to Naomi. Naomi is in Moab and she's lost her family and things are desperate and it seems like God is not working over here. But then she noticed, hey, hang on a minute, God is actually working over there. And I want to say, church, this morning that you need not just for God to work over here, you also need God to work over there. You say, well, over... This is complete nonsense. For where? Well, anywhere that you're not. Because sometimes we look at our immediacy of our situation, the physicality of our situation, and we look around and say, well, God's not working here. I can't see him working here. I can't see him working in my business. I can't see him working in my family. But you're completely oblivious to the fact that his favor surrounds you like a shield. And he may not seem to be working over here, but over there he certainly is. Now, let me use Joel over here as, as an illustration. Joel, Joel uh, working in his office environment, working on the second story. Joel working in, in an office area and thinking to myself, wow, it just doesn't seem like God is working over here in my world. I, I see the same desk, the same notice board. I've got the same office personnel around me and he could easily put his head down. He could easily begin to step into, you know what? God doesn't work for me. The claw has not picked me up. God's not here. He's not moving. God's doing not good things. But little does he know that two stories up in another office over there, there's someone who's having a conversation. Say, you know what we need to do? We need to go down two levels. We need to go down three levels because there's this guy called Joel. And somebody says, yeah, I've heard of Joel. Well, this Joel guy just seems to be, that there's like his aura. There's this atmosphere around his life. People like him. People speak well about him. You know, people, uh, you know, uh, things that he does just, just seems to happen. It's amazing how sometimes we relegate to God to being here. When he's actually over there. Again, this is just utter nonsense. We learned this less than 18 years ago. Glenn, it may not seem like God is in this situation. And now we're into another life story about Glenn Barrett. Situation over here in Sydney. But he's working on the other side of the world over there for you right now. Our father who art in heaven. He's over there. But he's also over here. 
years ago when we were in a situation where Sophie and I had felt called to the young people of this nation and we moved from being youth pastors in our church to being associate pastors in our church in Sheffield and we didn't want to be associate pastors and we had this dream to, to work with teenagers and young people and yet we were becoming associate pastors which basically means you work with older people and we didn't want to work with older people. We didn't understand older people. And we had our dream, it felt like, pulled away from us as now we were asked to do things like hospital visits and adult small groups and all the sorts of things that no young man really wants to do. The dream was lost. Little did we know the same day that the dream was taken away from us over here. About 200 miles away in Coventry from where we were at the very same time, someone was having a conversation about the youth department of the denomination of churches that we belong to saying this, you know what, in six months time, I'm going to step down from this role. And the national president of it said this, we need to actually hand this role on to Glenn and Sophie. We didn't know about it until later. But what I learned was this, was that in my situation, it felt like God was not working over here. But praise God, he was certainly working over there. And you may not feel like God is working over here right now, but I want to tell you something. If you don't feel him working over here, he's working over there. You say, well, where's he working? Well, I don't know. He's working in your next step. He's working in your next season. He's working in your future. You're going to find that you're going to walk into days. You're going to walk. This is just utter nonsense. These words don't mean anything. Where is he? I don't know. He's, he's working over there. He's working in your future. This isn't about what Ruth is about at all. This is utter nonsense. These are empty words. Walk into moments. You're going to walk into seasons and you're going to think to yourself, how, how did I get here? How did this door just open up for me? I didn't work for it. It's not like I did anything for it. And God, you'll find he'll whisper and say, while you were over there, I was over here. I was working in your tomorrow. I was working in your next season. You see, church, everything now is seed for the future. Your attitude, your response, your words, it's all seed for the future. God, God right now is cultivating opportunity in your future. He's cultivating a future day. In a few weeks' time, Pastor Paul Reed is speaking on extraordinary opportunity. And right now, God is already preparing that. But everything right now, everything is seed for that opportunity. Discovering that God is actually not ultimately into your destination. He's into the person you become on the destination. Why am I walking through this season? Well, it's about the person that you're becoming. It's about the person that he is shaping you to be. And Naomi is beginning to understand here that God is not just working over here. He's working over there. You see, we've got to understand that even over here, when it doesn't feel like God is there, I still have extraordinary favor. Come on, say it with me. I have extraordinary favor. Even when I can't see him, God is moving. Uh, let me read on. In verse 6, it goes on and it says this. So Naomi and her daughters prepared to return home. There's favor in the famine. There's favor over there. But there's also favor in positioning. They prepared to position themselves. They prepared to return home. And I love this. They prepared to position themselves. Again, I just read the entire book. The text doesn't say anything of the sort. You see, church, favor is something that you can't earn. It's not achieved. Favor is merely received. 
Okay, now listen to what he just said. Favor is not earned, it's merely received, and then he's going to completely obliterate what he just said with what he's about to say. Listen. Mark Twain, one of my favorite writers, he said this, heaven goes by favor. If it went by merit, your dog would get in and you would miss out. It's amazing to me how many people are trying to seek the favor of God. Welcome to Christianity, religion 101. Religion 101 says this, if I pray enough, if I go to church enough, I tithe enough, if I do the right things enough, if I do what the Pharisees did in the Bible, if I go into the streets and everybody sees me doing the religious thing. Now, it sounds like he's, he's talking about God's favor as a gift, right? Listen in. Enough, then I will earn a certain status with heaven and in my status with God, God will throw down measures of favor determined according to what I do. But we've got to understand here that favor is not earned. Favor is not achieved. Favor is actually found. Uh, uh, okay. What do you mean? Luke one thirty. Mary, you have found favor. Ugh, crying out loud. And how do you find it? Similar words were said to Elizabeth. Elizabeth said, well, who am I that I should receive favor? Mary said, who am I that I should receive favor? She wasn't earning it. She wasn't trying to achieve it. She just simply found it. So you stumble on it. Okay. She found favor. But because God is the God of favor, church, I want to tell you something, that you today, you have found favor with him. Favor is something that you position yourself for. There it is. Listen again. It's not earned. It's not achieved. But what do you got to do? Favor is something that you position yourself for. Ah, you achieve it by positioning yourself. Isn't that the same as earning it? Uh Uh-huh. Notice this. It's, it's, not, it's not a posturing or posing. There's a great verse in the Bible. It says this in Psalm 84. For the Lord your God is a sun and a shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those, look at this, whose walk is blameless. Now we- <laughs> Oh, there you go. No good thing does he withhold whose walk is blameless. Good luck. It's not earned, but you, your walk has to be blameless. <laughs> Mine is, because I'm covered in the perfect righteousness of Christ. And we could look at that and say, okay, see that walk that is blameless, that that's obviously an achieving. I've got to achieve in that walk, and in achieving, then God will give good things. But I want to tell you that walk is not a walk of achieving, it's a walk of positioning. Carly and Josh Cocker got married. It's a walk, of, not of achieving, but of positioning. So if I position myself, then I can achieve it, right? He's talking out of both sides of his mouth. He has no concept of what the gospel really is. Married about six months ago. And Josh stood down the front here. And Carly, looking beautiful, walked down the aisle. And of course, all eyes were on Carly. It was like, wow, she's awesome. And she made that long walk, that slow march. Not to be confused with the death march. It's exactly the same march, it's just different music. Try watching a horror movie sometime with classical music or something like that. It's hilarious, honestly, it's brilliant. The walk down the aisle was not a walk of posturing and posing, though she did look beautiful. The walk down the aisle was a walk of positioning. She walked down the aisle. What? This is complete and utter non... You're just making this up, right? And was positioning herself for a new future. 
The groom, as he stands from the front row and walks to the front, it's not a walk of posturing and posing, it's a walk of positioning. He's positioning himself with his new bride for a new life, for a new journey, for a new season, for new opportunities, for new favor, for new things to happen. And church, the Bible calls us, the church, the bride of Christ. The walk that is blameless is not a walk of posturing and posing and achieving. The walk is a walk of positioning. God, I I position myself to be with you. The reason we come to church is not because we must. It's not because we're trying to achieve anything. It's a walk of positioning. Lord, I stand in this place and I position myself in your presence. And though the challenges of the week have been great, I position myself in an environment of faith where the word of God is preached and the people of God are. And there's someone who I can talk to if I need a helping hand. There's someone who I can become a mutual encourager of. It's a walk of positioning. I remember when God first really opened my eyes to how magnificent he was. I was just a teenager and God was up to something in this place. And I made a decision I don't want to sit with my friends. I don't want distractions. There was such a sense of God. It felt like God was doing something. And I I said to my friends, listen, I'm going to sit over here today. And and at the end of the service, they went home. And there was a presence of God in the room. And the keyboardist, who was actually an organist back in those days, kept playing. And I sat in the auditorium, not moving. And people came up and I was saying, yeah, okay, yeah, okay. And I just kind of put my head down and, I was positioning myself. I said, God, I know you're doing something. And now I just feel like it's my time. You see, favor is positioning. And your environment is key. The reason I have faithfully and diligently given my tithes over the years that I've been saved since being such a young boy, really, my dad and mom taught me the principles of tithing, is because in doing so, I'm positioning myself. That God, with my 10%, I, I'm testing you because the Bible says that with my 10%, I, I test you. And then with the rest that I give, I trust you. Uh, what passages of that again? Maybe the Bible teaches it, maybe it doesn't, but I don't recall the actual words that you just used in Scripture. So I would need a verse for that. You know what I'm doing? I'm positioning my bank balance to say, God, you're bigger than payday. Yeah, I don't think you know what you're talking about again. Can I just say this, that in 18 years of being full-time as a preacher and as a pastor, never in 18 years have I ever seen anybody who has been faithful in their stewardship of finances and tithing. And tithing is stewardship of your finances. I have never seen somebody lack. I was young, now I'm old, David says. I have never seen the righteous forsaken for bread. You know what's going on? Every Sunday we do that, we're saying, God, I'm positioning myself. I've been with Yorkshire Bank in Sheffield for 18 years. And every week, every month, 10% goes straight out of my account, straight into the house of God. I'm positioning myself. In my worship on a Sunday, I position myself. Yesterday, going to another meeting at this Methodist conference. Yeah, here we go again, all about this. He's positioning himself, but this isn't achieving. He's just positioning himself. Don't you, uh, if you've positioned yourself correctly, don't you achieve, you earn yeah, this is, again, this is the theology that talks out of both sides of its mouth. And he clearly has no clue what the story of Ruth is really all about. But we continue. 
conference. I was there and the songs were not our songs. But you know what I did? I positioned myself. Chip Kendall this morning in his leading of our worship, you know, in the way that he does, he's saying to people, okay, get on your knees. And, and people, you know, people, people were positioning. Favor's not achieved. Received. And the Bible says in verse six, it says here that Naomi and her daughters, they prepared to return home. I want to skip to the end of this story and we're going to come to land here. We're going to get to chapter four. In chapter four, it's been a bizarre story. Ruth, her daughter-in-law, who was a foreigner, uh, decided that she would actually live with Naomi. Naomi would be now become her mum. Uh, the other sister uh, decided to stay back at home, stay in that foreign land. But Ruth said to Naomi, I will go with you. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. She made a decision herself. I will position myself under the one true God of heaven. I will position myself where you are. Because I understand Ruth is saying that relationships are powerful in my life. So I choose to position myself in powerful relationships. As Paul was speaking of... She didn't say anything of the sort. I just read the entire book. ...about last Sunday night, and we have this crazy story that goes on. Read it. You know, this moment where Ruth stumbles across a field, and the Bible says, as luck would have it, the Bible says, literally, as luck would have it, she stumbled upon a field, the field belonging to Boaz, and she ends up marrying this man, Boaz. And then in chapter 4, verse 13, reading from the New Living Translation, it says this, Boaz took Ruth into his home, and she became... His wife. When he slept with her, the Lord enabled her to become pregnant and she gave birth to a son. The woman, the women of Bethlehem said to Naomi, Praise the Lord who has now provided a redeemer for your family. May this child be famous in Israel. May he restore your youth and care for you in your old age. For he is the son of your daughter-in-law who loves you and has been better and been better to you than seven sons. Naomi took the baby and cuddled him to her breast and she cared for him as if he were her own. You see, if there's favor in famine... Now, listen to what he does with this. If you know Hebrew, you can't possibly make this mistake. It's clear Glenn Barrett doesn't know what he's talking about, but I'll let him wax eloquent first before we shoot him down. And favor over there. And favor is something that you position yourself for. I want you to get this, that favor is ridiculous. This is the most ridiculous of all endings to a passage in Scripture, surely. Actually, this is the most ridiculous ending because you don't know what you're doing. You're ridiculous, but let's let you get it out first. Naomi, who is now a grandma. Naomi, who is now old and well on in years. Naomi, who has gone past the season of menopause. Naomi, who is old and beginning to wither. The Bible says here that when her grandson Obed was born, she took him and she cuddled him to her breast. I want you to understand there's more going on here than just a grandma giving a cuddle to his baby. Uh, no, actually there isn't. 
That when you actually read down into this and you take the text and you study it and you look through the different translations, you begin to realize... You look at the Hebrew and you can't come to this conclusion, but what's the conclusion? Listen, let me back it up just a smidge. And you take the text and you study it and you look through the different translations, you begin to realize that grandma began to breastfeed her grandson. No, absolutely not. Glenn Barrett is at this point flaunting his abject ignorance. Now, let's take a look at the text and let's just look at the Hebrew and all of this gets cleared up and goes away because this is not what the text says. Chapter 4, verse 16, here's what it says. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and began and became his nurse. Now, the the word there for nurse, okay, Amon, doesn't mean wet nurse, and it doesn't mean that she was nursing him. Okay, there is a completely different set of Hebrew words for that, and that's not what the words what the what words are being used here. It's not saying that Ruth or Naomi uh, became uh, a wet nurse for. Uh, her grandson. That's not what's going on at all. In fact, um, if you want to know what those words are, the uh, the right word here, okay, for nursing uh, in Hebrew is yanach, okay, and a wet nurse, a wet nurse, uh, that is the uh, the Hebrew word meneket, meneket, which actually has, you know, it was a form of the Hebrew word yanach, and so. What we're dealing with here in the Hebrew is just basically saying that she was a nurse, not a wet nurse. There's a specific Hebrew word for wet nurse, and that is not what Naomi is. At this point, Glenn Barrett is absolutely showing his ignorance of the biblical languages, and he's showing his complete ignorance of what's going on in this text because he is not qualified to be a teacher. He skips over all the important stuff, doesn't figure out how this is actually all about Christ, and you know that's what this is really about, and now he's making stuff up and flaunting his ignorance and showing that he doesn't know Hebrew. The you know the word used for nurse here of Naomi is not the Hebrew word for net, uh, wet nurse, which is what would have been used if that's what was going on. The text doesn't say that she miraculously in her old age um, started lactating. That's not what this says at all. Now, listen, that's not common in today's society in England. But, you know, having a wet nurse in other cultures is pretty common. Somebody else to breastfeed your child is fairly common. It even happened in our nation up until, I don't know, maybe 70 or 80 years ago. The nannies would, would, would often do that, would breastfeed the, the child, the baby of the richer families. Church, I want to tell you something. Favor is ridiculous. Here we have a woman who... Actually, what's ridiculous is your complete mishandling of God's word. Who, ...whose milk has dried up. Uh, the text doesn't say it came back. And she has withered in so many areas of her body. And yet the moment the baby is born, her milk begins to flow. Uh, no, it doesn't. The text doesn't say that. The Hebrew's very clear on this. If, it, if that's what would have happened, she would have been her grandson's wet nurse, 
And that's not the word that's used. And Grandma Naomi takes her grandson. Cue sappy music. By the way, this is an emotional manipulation technique in order to create the false impression that God the Holy Spirit has now come to, you know, do business with the folks there in the church. Obed. And begins to feed that child. And the Bible says, take care of him as though he were her very own child. Favor is ridiculous. What I love about this story of Naomi and Elimelech is that this story of favor actually begins in Ruth chapter 1 with a mistake. They left the place that they should have been in to go to find a better place. And yet in the midst of even the mistakes that they made, they could not escape the ridiculous favor of heaven. You see, his favor surrounds you. You cannot escape his favor. Favor is ridiculous. I don't know if you realize this, but Obed ends up being listed in the genealogy of Jesus. Hang on a minute. This doesn't... If you had read the text, that wouldn't have been a surprise. It's right there at the end of the text. ...really makes sense at all because Elimelech, he, through common sense, made the great error of judgment. Elimelech and his boys die, and yet somehow, supernaturally, this foreign daughter-in-law called Ruth goes back with Naomi, who's now a widow, who's lost her sons. They go back to the place of bread and discover ridiculous favor. Obed's name should not even be mentioned in Scripture if you think that God is just a claw. This is ridiculous. As if Elimelech really came close to losing God's favor because of the boneheaded move that he made. As if it was really even boneheaded. Or is he standing at the beginning of time saying favor 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 he surrounds you like a shield favor it doesn't matter whether you go up you go down you go in you go out you go forwards you go backwards favor favor and when you stumble and fall he still says favor favor and though people try to do difficult and challenging and bad things God still says favor 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 and though the marriage... So here we got God's favor without his forgiveness. Weird, huh? No repentance, no forgiveness of sins, no cross, just you speaking your future into existence by claiming that you have God's favor. This isn't Christianity. This is a completely different and damnable religion. Seems to have come to an end. He still says favor, 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 favor. I have extraordinary favor. Yeah, and that's the end of that perfectly awful sermon. Perfectly awful because the biblical text that he was supposedly preaching from takes you right to Christ and his redemptive work for us. And yet he didn't see that. All he saw was trying to figure out how the favor works in there. And yet when you test the theology that he has... You speak your word, you speak, and it has creative power to create. Remember, Naomi, she cursed her future with her negative words. But she really didn't because the Bible doesn't teach that that's what you do when you say negative things. The tyranny of the positive. That's what Joel Osteen and the Word of Faith heresy 
creates. And it's complete pooling of absolute ignorance and makes it impossible for you to understand what the Bible's really about because the Bible's not about you speaking God's favor into your life. It's about Christ coming to earth, born of the Virgin Mary, suffering under Pontius Pilate for your sins and for your salvation, being crucified, died, and buried, and then raised again on the third day for your justification. That's what the Scripture's about, not you learning how to apply you know, techniques of speaking positive future into existence by claiming God's favor. That's complete witchcraft. Nonsense. It can't save you. In fact, it will keep you on the road to hell. So what do you think? Love to get your feedback. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you could do so. My email address is talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian or follow me on Twitter, my name there, at pirate Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen. <laughs>